you're listening to That'll Preach. It's me and Paul back at it again, continuing our series on the Reformation, talking about what it means to be Protestant. And uh, it's going to be a good, it's going to be a good time doing some reading. Paul, you've been doing some reading yourself, catching up. It's been a great exercise for me just to understand Protestantism a little better on my own. And uh, so it's been a, it's been a fun journey. How have you been enjoying reading some good old Luther and some books about Luther? It's been great. I mean, I get, I know Luther gets a bad rap for being kind of unhinged, but he, he's actually got a lot of insights. And I think if you read him in a more systematic lens, you see that he's actually a really brilliant thinker. Like there, there's a reason why the last 500 years of Christianity, he's been a kind of not, he's a linchpin for Protestantism, but he's also been, you know, an interlocutor for the Catholic way of thinking. And there's a council in response to his work. And so he's someone to take seriously. And I, I've appreciated delving back into his work. You know, we're going to be citing a lot, at least I am, like I, some of the sources I'm using are D.G. Hart's book, Still Protesting, um, a book by Michael Barrett called Reformation as uh, Retrieval, or I'm sorry, as Renewal, a, a giant new book that's really, really good, really helpful. And then uh, some of the lectures from Ryan Reeves. And uh, these are awesome. We're going to put all these links in the show notes. So we're not plagiarizing. If you, if you hear that, if you heard this before, we're t- telling you the sources, you go check them out. They're really good. Buy the books, check it out. Uh, so, but, but hopefully we can distill some of the information we've been learning, you know, over the years. And then also recently has been studying, but uh, you know, I, I, I thought we could start this episode talking about um, what, what actually happened at the Reformation. What was the world like with Luther? And and again, if you check out Reeves' um, uh, uh, lectures, he really paints uh, an, a really articulate picture of the medieval world. So Martin Luther grew up in Germany, and uh, you know his dad wanted him to be a lawyer, and he was heading toward that direction. And you know they were a Catholic family; everybody was a Catholic family back then. And he was thinking about becoming a lawyer. He wanted to pursue that, and then he was caught in a thunderstorm. And he prayed to St. Anne, who's the mother of the Virgin Mary, and he was spared. And in that time, if that happened, it was like, you know, that's a huge deal. And one of the things he said was like, you know, St. Anne, if you spare me, I'm going to go in the monastery. And at the time, the monastery, that's like tier two Christians. Those are, you know, if you really want to devote yourself to a life of holiness, you became a monk. He becomes a monk and he goes in uh, to the monastery becomes a monk and that's where he you know starts to read a lot of the, the different sort of mystics and starts learning theology and thinking through a lot of different things so that's kind of the genesis of luther uh Reeves, one of the things he talks about is people sometimes psychologize luther as like he hated his parents or he was dealing with mommy daddy issues but in reality he's he does a good job i think of debunking that and saying like no luther was a normal guy his dad was a good dude they were faithful parents he's a normal guy is it ever perfect no but you can't try to discredit Luther by trying to overly psychologize him or pathologize him in some way. But uh, how are you going to psychologize someone 500 years ago? I feel like all these attempts are just silly and we shouldn't take them seriously ever. There you go. There you go. But uh, Luther is part of the medieval Roman Catholic system. Now this is, we're, we're taking a snapshot of Roman Catholicism at a particular time. You're baptized as a baby. And when you're baptized, you're forgiven of original sin forgiven of your temporal sin and, and your eternal sin, and you're placed into a state of grace and you're infused with righteousness by the Holy Spirit. So, and this is kind of, if you guys want to check out our podcast with Guillaume, where we talk about the c- contrasting division of, of justification by Protestants and by Catholics, he does a great job of this, but essentially by your baptism, that's what a, an evangelical would call your conversion. 
right? That's that's the moment. It's but it's at your baptism. It's through the sacrament of the baptism. The Holy Spirit infuses you with grace, with with righteousness, and you enter into a state of grace. So you're saved. And so in that sense, it is it's God's grace. Like you didn't earn your salvation. It was given to you as a gift, imparted through baptism. Then you grow up, and as you live your life, I mean, if you were to die right there as an infant, you would go to heaven because your original sins erased. You have no temporal sin. You go in. Problem is, as you grow up, you start to sin. And so there's this process you go through. You go through uh, confession. You have to have contrition over your sin. A priest pronounces absolution over you as a mediator. And then you do penance. Now, it, it, penance was interesting. I was doing some research on this, and it seems like to get back into a state of grace, you need confession and an absolution by a priest. And then penance is a specific kind of application. When you sin, you incur temporal debt. And that's what gets paid off in purgatory. But penance is a way that you can kind of do it now. And so you don't have to suffer it in purgatory. And so penance was an act that would be prescribed to you that would atone for that temporal debt. And there were two two ways to do it. This is I'm taking this from Sean Luke from Anglican Aesthetics. He's got great videos on this. And uh, he, he describes as this, there's a, a medicinal aspect to penance. It's kind of like what Protestants would say is application of a sermon. You know, it's like, okay, you've confessed your sin. Now here's what you should do to strengthen yourself so you don't sin again. So there's a very practical kind of pastoral aspect. Then there's the satisfactory element where it's a satisfaction for temporal debt for the punishment that you would, the retributive punishment you would experience in purgatory. So you kind of pay it now rather than paying it later. And, the, you know, penance could be through acts of charity you know, different kinds of things that would be prescribed. And that brings you, or that solidifies the state of grace, however you want to put it. And so it's that cycle. And so it's not as simple as like faith and works, but it's, it's the, the that's kind of the world that Luther's living in. Do you have anything to add to that or any, you know, any thoughts on that? Yeah. So it, it, it also was interesting that the penance that you did would take off usually long periods of time in purgatory, which I always found interesting how Catholics were able to justify that. Like you could do either some almsgiving or the famous case that Luther pointed out, you you crawl up the stairs at the basilica on your knees, and that's supposed to remove like a hundred years from purgatory. And it's just, it's interesting. So the incentive is to get it done here because it's less painful than what it would be in the afterlife. And so penance and then, you know, corresponding the indulgences where you could buy for yourself or other people, which I guess we'll talk about. It's supposed to, the incentive is do it here for cheaper so that you save yourself a longer, more painful kind of satisfaction payment process in purgatory. It's important here. And this is what I think Guillaume helped us understand. And make sure you guys listen to that podcast interview. It was really great. We'll, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. Um, he basically clarified that if you want to get to the to brass tacks, a person is on their deathbed, a Catholic priest and a Protestant pastor, priest, whatever, is there. They're going to give them two different messages to the answer. How do I enter into heaven? Right? How do I get saved? The Protestant's going to say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins and you will be saved. The Catholic is going to say, you need to be baptized if you haven't been baptized already. And if you've committed sin, you need absolution. Right by a priest. So, not saying which one's right or wrong at this point. They're different. That they're they're different. It's not two different ways of saying the same thing. Those are two different ways of saying two different things. Right. Mm -hmm. So, so I think we we can't 
we have to make that very clear. So, but that's the Roman Catholic system. In many ways, Luther kind of stumbles into the Reformation. He's not sitting there thinking, I'm going to reform the church. There's the issue of indulgences. Um, there's different social issues going on that are prompting him to think and reflect. And people disputed all the time. It wasn't like like a heavy authoritarian. Everyone had to think the same way. People were discussing, you know, the scholastics were discussing these types of things. And there were many people before Luther um, who who started to question a lot of the Catholic system. So Luther is kind of within the flow of history. He's not just this sort of single figure, but he's part of an already burgeoning kind of movement that's going back to the sources, considering scripture, considering history, and thinking through these types of things. There's this experience that he has, essentially, as a monk, because at the time, people were were terrified. This was sort of like the medieval kind of... Uh, sense of like, well, how do I know that I have enough contrition? How do I know how much of my debt is being taken care of? How do I know that my works, I'm cooperating enough with them? I mean, there's all these questions. There was a lack of assurance. And so people were terrified. And so there was this phrase that the Catholic Church was putting out there, which was essentially do the best that you can, do what is within you. They were trying to say like, you know, you don't have to like aim for 100%, do your best you know, cooperate with grace, love, hope, charity, all these things, do your best, you'll be fine. But Luther knew the logical inclusion of this because he started to think, well, how do I know when I'm doing my best? Like, how do I actually know that? You know, if you wake up at 5 a.m. To, to pray the Psalms, you could have woken up at 3 a.m. to pray the Psalms. How do you know that you're doing what is truly in you? How do you know that you're cooperating with this infused grace to the degree that would give you any sense of assurance? And it drove him crazy. Uh, it, it, it caused a lot of consternation and anxiety. And that's what started to develop in his mind because he, he would look at God and he'd be like, God is a is terrifying. Mm-hmm. And I mean, there's, there's just nothing's good enough. Like I can never know where I stand with God. And a big moment happens. He's reading Romans 1, 17, where, you know, the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, right? The righteous shall live by faith. And in the Catholic vision, it was the righteousness of God is the moral perfection of God, sort of like the standard of God is revealed in the gospel. And those who meet that standard are those who live by faith, meaning faith, not meaning what Protestants mean, but faith as as uh, belief and also a cooperation with love and charity and, and basically a participation in the Catholic system, right? And Luther was like, I kind of hate God. Like that is so rigorous if you really think about what that means. And the big aha moment for him was he realized, wait a minute, the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel is not his standard that crushes us. It is his saving power. It is this alien righteousness that he gives to us in Christ. Now, I actually don't think that he was totally right about that particular interpretation of the verse. So he kind of got the right doctrine from the wrong verse. But I do think that the righteousness of God is, and a lot of uh, scholars are talking about this, it, it, it is, it's the saving power of God. The gospel reveals the saving mercy of God, and the righteous are those who have faith. In other words, faith being a knowledge of the truth, right? An affirmation that that truth is true, and then a giving of yourself, a trusting into that. And I think Luther's great insight was the gospel isn't good news unless it deals with the most fundamental issue of humanity, which is our sin, that our sin is so deep. That we, if we look inside ourselves, even for the ability to cooperate with grace, 
we will find nothing but despair. And I think that actually bears out in reality, you know? And he realized we are so helpless. And this, this develops what he calls the theology of the cross, where the, the point of the gospel is to show your absolute inability to help yourself. And that the gospel, the good news, is the absolute pure gift of divine mercy that will produce works, but not on the basis of works. That we are justified, we're counted righteous before God through the instrument of faith alone. And that was his kind of freeing moment where he realized the gospel is good news precisely because it is not about our contributions in any respect. Because if it were, we would fail every time if we were honest about ourselves. And to me, that, that, that strikes, you know, I, I think about the, the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know, tax collector, all he does, he beats his chest and he says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And that's essentially justification by faith alone in a snapshot where he's saying at the end of the day, the only reason that we have reconciliation with God, that we can enter the new heavens, new earth, that we can be with God forever is because of God, is because of God. If, if there's anything, we cannot contribute anything because we are just unable, like we're so filled with this weakness and this finitude and this sin that unless we cast ourselves on the mercy of Christ, there's nothing for us. I think this so, is where actually the the theological um, motivation for some of Luther's critiques and the practical motivation come together. Luther has this, if you read the 95 Theses, if you read Freedom of a Christian, some of the earlier works that he's writing as he's beginning to, you know, kick against the Catholic system, a lot of it is in response to this, as you pointed out, this Roman Catholic vision of God as not actually for us, that God is just like waiting there to bludgeon you and give you the standard that you can never, ever, ever be expected to meet. And on the basis of that, there's a kind of like mystery. Well, am, am I good enough? Am I not? Does, does this God even love me? And you combine that with the practice of indulgences, where now people are being put into this situation where they have to pay to avoid thousands and thousands of years of literal hellfire, right? Like they're Christians, they're on their way to heaven, but you're telling them that, oh, for you or for your mom who died last week, she's experiencing thousands of years of hellfire, unless you give this money to help build this basilica, or even unless you give half of that money is going to go to me as the bishop who, you know, and paid for half of my position anyway. So it's like, it's simony, it's indulgences, it's this view of God as like, not not anti-wrathful against sin, but just this God who doesn't love you. And all of this is coming together. And Luther sees that Rome is just imposing this horrible burden on people. That's nothing like the freedom that he sees in the gospel and in the epistles of Paul, where there's there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why he he titles his his work the freedom of a Christian, because he really thinks that what it is to be a child of God is to have this freedom, freedom from, freedom from the Roman system, freedom to experience life as someone whom God delights in. And for him, that's just paradigm changing. And so he sees the, the horrible conditions of the Roman system, both theologically and practically, that put people literally in chains, either agonizing over their eternal state or literally drying up their resources so that they can't even live their lives and saying, this is not freedom. This can't be what Christianity is about. And so there has to be something went wrong somewhere. What, like we ended up here, like, how did this happen? Um, and so it's, it's, 
yeah, the theological wing and the practical wing actually, I think, fit neatly together in Luther's critique. One of the things that's interesting is uh, Robert Barron, when he's talking about Luther, this is the Catholic uh, apologist, he says that one of Luther's problems was his nominalism and that God exists on the same ontological plane as man. And therefore, if God saves and man has any, any works involved, they're in competition. And he's saying that Luther's working off of a false premise of that if I contribute any works to salvation, that necessarily removes glory from God. And Barron criticizes Luther and says, actually, that's wrong, that that's not the case. But I thought about that. I'm like, interesting, because you could apply that to human agency as well, because the whole point of cooperating with grace is the idea that um, your you know, works must be performed on our own strength to be truly ours. Right. That's the whole idea of cooperation, that mm -hmm. that you're cooperating with grace merits things. That's in the Catholic view. But I'm like, wait a minute. The whole point of compatibilism is that God's action and our action aren't in competition. We don't need right. a cooperation in that sense that, you know, it is us, but it's God's power working through us. So I thought that was kind of an interesting. It's like, OK, if you're going to criticize Luther for that. Are you now a compatibilist like <laughs> like Aquinas and Augustine? And what's interesting is when you look at Aquinas or you look at Augustine and some of the stuff that they write sounds very works -y. You know, they, they don't, I mean, obviously it's, it's an anachronism to try to find justification by faith alone as a phrase in their writings, but all of their stuff on works is tied to their very strong predestinarian theology. And if you tie it in there, then when we talk about works being necessary for our salvation, we know that those works are not wrought by our will. You know, they're wrought by the will of God. I mean, there are our will, but, both. Can, but, yeah. Yeah, but, but it's in a compatibilistic sense, not in a cooperative sense. So in that sense, uh, Augustine is monergistic. I mean, at least that was the argument of a lot of the reformers, right? So it's so funny to me that I'm thinking like, yeah, I, I, I agree. God is not on the same ontological plane. That's exactly why things like compatibilism can work. That's why God's sovereignty and man's human will can be compatible together precisely because of that. So I don't know, maybe yeah. that's, I, that was just something I was musing about. I'm like, that's a very interesting. Uh, I actually, idea. I think, yeah, I think once you understand a lot of, Roman Catholic teaching in this compatibilist sense, there there is a kind of bringing together, or at least the, the gap, I think, is a little bit narrower than previously conceived. The real gap is, as we pointed out at the beginning of the episode, it's about the works in the sacramental system. That is the thing that's distinctive. But if we're just talking about cooperating with God in the sense that God moves us and the Holy Spirit moves our will and moves our Right. appetites and moves our desires and i can't do anything right it, like literally i have my my being in christ and that's sort of everything that i'm doing is in a sense god is doing it through me so yeah the, the protestant can happily say yeah i agree that that's the case but it's not on the basis of the sacramental system of works that i am now put in a state of grace or being in right standing before god that's the the more i think that's what state that's what's at stake in the debate between catholics and protestants not just this like what like what does it count what does it count for something to be a human work that's i think the ultimate question um and protestants and catholics can agree that god cooperates or we cooperate with god in this monergistic sense so long as it's not us contributing anything of our own that god is not doing through us already sure. um yeah. well, this gets into justification and that would be a whole other episode i mean luther definitely touches on that now, there was also some social issues going on. You mentioned indulgences, which were essentially, if you didn't have the time or the, you know, 
patience, I guess, to, to do penance. How would you get rid of your temporal debt that would accrue in purgatory? Well, or, or somebody else's debt or somebody else's debt. Yeah. Or, or the debt of the yeah. dead, right. Mm-hmm. Who, who are in purgatory. How could you help them and lessen their time? Well, you could pay indulgences and they were essentially, it was almsgiving. You were, that's, it's not necessarily like you write a check. It's, it's part of charity that you would do it and you would give it to the church and priests on your behalf would intercede for you and they would do the works of penance for you. And they would kind of be like your four higher people to, to kind of whittle down the, the time in, purgatory for your loved ones or for yourself. And obviously that's, that's ripe for abuse. And that's what was happening. Johann Tetzel, that's the famous foil Mm -hmm. to Martin Luther would go around. And what was the phrase? It's um, a coin in the coffers uh, rings, a soul from purgatory springs. There you go. There you go. Yeah. So he's a slogan man, but he's going around and and that's, and, and it wasn't just Luther. A lot of people hated it. I mean, they were just like, mm-hmm. this is wrong. So it wasn't as though like Luther was the only one being like, something's weird. I mean, there were tons of Catholics. I mean, everyone, again, everyone was Catholic back then, but there were a bunch of people in the church who were like, that's wrong. This is clearly wrong. This clearly needs reform. And that's what prompts Luther to write his 95 thesis. Um, you know, he nails it onto the, onto the, um, the door at Fittenberg. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And uh, what's interesting is they don't know when he did it. They just found it the next morning. So it wasn't this like massive public event. It just sort of, and also that's what they did. It wasn't like they were like this revolutionary thing. I mean, that's what you did. If you wanted to debate about a particular issue of doctrine, you're nailed to the door and that's what would open it up for debate. And so Luther wasn't trying to start a reformation, even though he started thinking about these things, his big deal was dealing with indulgences. He thought, Hey, we need to reform this. Now you, you said that you had spent some time reading through it. What are some insights that you gained as you were reading through the 95 theses? I just I found myself getting really angry at uh, at just the abuse these practices, um, like making people, like forcing people or like putting them in this position. You're you're emotionally manipulating people into giving money to fund these building projects by telling them your mom is you know experiencing hellfire for thousands of years, and by giving some money you can lessen that. Just like think about it's so much worse than the prosperity gospel. At least the prosperity gospel is about temporal benefits and you're not emotionally manipulating people with the afterlife in the same way. Like if, if we want to condemn the prosperity gospel, then imagine like multiply that by a hundred times. And that's the kind of critique that you would have to level at the system of indulgences. And Luther is, is doing this from like a pastoral compassionate perspective. He's just, he's looking at what's going on here and he opens up the 95 thesis with this like powerful line when our lord and master jesus christ said repent in matthew 4:17 he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance so basically a dig at the entire system of indulgences what it is to be a christian is to live a life of repentance so how dare you clerics give people these extra things to do on top of that as if jesus christ command is not enough right like how dare you do that and he just goes through over and over and over again. It's funny that he actually includes the Pope as a friend, right? This is his he first defend, time he's writing he something. Him, yeah. He's defending the Pope. He's saying, look, yeah. look at all these crazy people running amok, abusing the system. Like I'm trying to bring this to you so you can correct this. And in Freedom of a Christian, he dedicates the, the work to Pope Leo. So he's still, he's still very Pope friendly, very, very friendly to the Catholic system. He just he loves the church so much that he's willing to potentially ostracize himself. And he loves his not just his congregation, his parish, but people in the Western um, 
uh, Western medieval world that much that he's willing to make these kinds of critiques and risk ostracization and the ire of the the clergy because he's he's genuinely looking out for the welfare of human beings and he he sees the horrible abuse of this system and putting things on top of people in addition to what the scriptures are commanding and he just he gets fed up like you could just imagine the the camel the straw that breaks the camel's back and he puts this up there and he thinks something needs to change but it's really deeply pastoral it's not just it's not just a heady theoretical theological you know, splitting hair sort of thing. He sees the ramifications of this on people's lives and the toll that it's taking. And yeah, I, it was, it's deeply moving. And um, it's sort of, you know, I, I, we always joke about like, I've got my Roman Catholic sympathies and my phases <laughs> and reading through the, uh, the 95 theses and the history of the indulgences kind of, it, it, it paints a lot of these things in a much starker way. And it's difficult to strive to even reconcile that with Christianity. And most modern Catholics would be like, yeah, Luther had a point. Yeah. Like, I don't yeah, think yeah. anybody is being like Tetzel right. was the man. Right. Although the Catholic Church reinstituted indulgences. That's still legitimate today. Yeah. We did it in 2000. I think it was Pope John Paul. Well, II, he, something like even that. the Council of Trent, it in response to Luther, condemns the abuse of indulgences, right. but still says that if anybody yeah. disagrees with indulgences, they are anathema. So at least in principle, they're okay with the practice. Well, What's fascinating is you look at, again, the 95 Theses, when he writes it, he's still very much Catholic. I mean, he's sitting there. He's he's saying this is dishonoring the Pope. Um, We shouldn't be treating the Church of God like this. We shouldn't be defaming the Church of God like this. This is wrong. Now, he's already had his breakthrough at this point. Whereas at least these new thoughts are percolating in his mind. But he hasn't worked it out totally because he's a human being. And I think we forget that. Where... You got to think you're Luther. All you've known is the Catholic Church. You're not going to get out there and be like, let's just let's just wreck this whole thing. And he didn't start out trying to be this firebrand. He was just saying, I'm concerned and I just want to bring this up. So he's still saying like, yes, the papacy, all this stuff as a way of like, that's how anyone would operate. I mean, if you see something happening at work and you're going to be like, you're not going to just trash your boss. You're going to be like, hey, I love this company. I believe in the mission, just some shady stuff going on. You know, you're going to start off softly because you care about people and they're your friends and you believe in this. And, you know, you want to be very quick, very slow, rather, to be revolutionary. But what happens is, um, and, and this is fascinating from, from Reeves' lectures, he, he talks about how the church kind of sees this professor, this teacher in Luther, and they sort of want to make an example of him because. You know, they're trying to build build the basilica. They don't they don't want to, you know, they don't want their funding to run out. Luther actually apologized to the archbishop and he says, look, I, I probably was too overstating things and all that stuff. And apparently the archbishop didn't even read the apology and just sent the 95 Thesis and the apology to the Pope. And the Pope is now uh, really mad about it. And he says, basically, go after him, pressure him uh, basically to, to recant and turn away. And uh, get him to to clarify his stance. And this is what gets things rolling. And what happens is people start taking Luther's uh, uh, works and Luther's uh, 95 Thesis. They start translating it into German. And that actually starts to spread around. And people start, he, he essentially goes viral. Luther goes viral. And he didn't, was looking for this. I mean, there's a printing press, all this stuff. And now Luther's sort of thrust onto the stage. And now he's heading toward a, a showdown with papacy. Uh, he debates with uh, Johann Eck, a Catholic mm-hmm. theologian. 
Uh, it's the Leipzig Disputation 1519, I believe. And they're arguing, and basically, Eck is like, do you think the Pope can err? And Luther's like, yeah. I mean, this is the fruit of his. This is the fruit of his study. Also, him reading, uh, you know, uh, Jan Hus, mm -hmm. um, you know, who had earlier questioned uh, the papacy. So Luther again, there's all this stuff in his mind, and providence and events are are forcing him to think and clarify, and then actually kind of bring to the conclusion some of these thoughts that have been just sort of in the back of his mind. So providence is forcing the issue for him. And at each point, he's clarifying what he thinks and he's developing his thought until he basically says, uh, yeah, man, I, uh, I, I, I don't think that the, the, the Pope is infallible, essentially. And uh, so he basically, that's what begins him saying, actually, if it's between the Bible and the Pope, I'm picking the Bible. And there you have the beginnings of Sola Scriptura, not really the beginnings, the recapturing of it, because his whole point yeah. was him saying, and the reformers and Calvin saying, this has always been the view of the church. And that leads to the papal bull against Luther 1519, which uh, was basically saying, if you don't answer these questions, we're going to kick you out of the church. We're going to excommunicate you. Luther, in Luther fashion, burns it. And then January 1520, <laughs> he's excommunicated as a heretic. And when the church excommunicates you as a heretic, you go on trial with the state, and if they agree, they kill you. And uh, so Luther is brought in front of the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V at the Diet of Worms in 1520, which is basically like a congressional meeting, a meeting of all these leaders, princes, and the Holy Roman Emperor himself to adjudicate uh, all the charges against um, Luther. And uh, that's where Luther has his famous, here I stand, I can do no other. If he, in fact, said that. If he said it. Yeah. If he said it. And uh, that didn't make anybody happy. But uh, instead of being executed, his buddy Frederick the Wise, who was a, 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 a prince, the prince of Saxony, he was mm -hmm. basically his buddy and made sure that, I mean, Luther was protected a lot because he had good friends. Mm -hmm. Even even some of his friends didn't agree with him, but they were like, this is our dude. This is our professor. This is our guy. We're going to protect him. And so because he had some friends in high places, he wasn't immediately executed. He flees as he goes into hiding and uh, he goes and holds up in a castle. Wartburg Castle, and there he starts to do a lot of the systematizing, the real deep meditation and thinking. He grows a beard as a big, you know, rebellious move against, you know, monks are supposed to be clear, we're supposed to be clean shaven. I didn't know mm -hmm. that. That was interesting. That's why a lot of the reformers have beards. And uh, that's where he starts to really lay the groundwork for what became the Reformation. Um, you know, so I, I love this, these stories about Luther. I mean, it's, I mean, it's crazy. It's true. Like what a life this guy lived. And also yeah. within, you know, a decade or two, you know, like it's not, this is a fast moving, you know, series of events. I love but the story I, when he uh, basically raids the convent and <laughs> he's got his merry band of disciples and they go into the convent and he's just like, Christ has freed you from these vows. And so he's all these former monks and all these nuns, they just pair up and get married and have families. I, I heard I, this is totally like, I, I don't know if this is actually true. I just remember who said this, but it was like they hid in barrels and rolled away. Like they all hid in barrels to like escape. <laughs> and then, yeah, then they paired off. And then like the last one was uh, Catherine. Uh, oh my gosh, her last name's escaping me. She was the mother superior, right? Like she was the. Oh, it's going to drive me crazy. I wish I should have had this written down. Basically, the woman that Luther ended up marrying, she was the most 
uh, homely looking one. M- m- n- not not the Katharina first Katharina Von Bora. Was that? Catherine Von Bora. Catherine Von Bora. That uh, the other monks and the other nuns, they kind of paired up. They were like, you know, and then the one who didn't get picked was the last one. And Luther was like, apparently, allegedly, he said, I'm going to marry her to spite the devil. But they ended up having a beautiful marriage. They wrote letters to each other, talked about, uh, you know, beer and farts and all this. Luther Luther talking about farts is actually one of the funniest things. If you look through some <laughs> of his things, like, you know, Luther was... Um, I chased the today. devil away a fart with a fart was like one of the famous lines. Oh yeah. 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 And I mean, it's just Luther, Luther and fart quotes. Uh, we'll, we'll actually, I'm just going to Google. Here we go. The Luther oh, insult yeah. generator. Yeah. Luther insult <laughs> generator. Um, here are some great insults by Luther. You are the worst rascal of all the rascals on earth. That's from against the Roman papacy and it's an institution of the devil. Uh, <laughs> I would not smell the foul odor of your name. You people are more stupid than a block of wood. What pigsties could compare in goings on with you? Uh, may God punish you, I say, you shameless, barefaced liar, devil's mouthpiece, who dares to spit out before God, before all the angels, before the dear son, before all the world, your devil's filth. <laughs> you seem to me to be a real masterpiece of the devil's art. That's a good one. I am tired of the pestilent voice of your sirens. <laughs> <laughs> He's got such a way with words. I wish we could write like this today, but you know. Oh my gosh! Standards. Uh, I think oh, this is this is a good one. This is it's got a bad word in it, but this is I'm, I'm reading history. You vulgar boar, blockhead, and lout. You ass to cap all asses, screaming <laughs> your hee haws. <laughs> Oh man, this is this is why people think I, well, I would a be a Protestant. I would be a Protestant based on his quotes alone. Forget the theology. I'd just be like, "Look, this guy's got to be right." <laughs> you know, it's so wrong, it's so right. But uh, I just there was quite that, the character. I love that this exists. Ninety percent of Brian and I's text messages to each other are just Luther insults. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, what are some things that were inspiring to you as you started studying Luther? And you said his boldness. To confront that massive system, but uh, yeah, what his, were I mean, your reactions? The boldness, the compassion. The you really got the sense that this was a, a shepherd and a pastor of people who saw, who was seeing people do these, uh, you know, over over the top penances and just being driven by fear and like literally the horror horror of thinking about your loved ones like burning for thousands of years and just thinking about the kind of horrible manipulation that was going on and people abusing their positions of power and the simony like paying for your papal or your your clergy office your clerical office and thinking this is just it's all it's money it's power it's greed it's extortion it's trampling on the destitute and the and it was just you get the sense that luther's kind of like channeling his old testament prophet right just like isaiah you know, shouting against the Israelites for forgetting the poor or worshiping false gods or caring about greed. And, you know, I think there's a kind of, there's an element of that in Luther's, the way he speaks. And I think that that's kind of uh, attractive and compelling, but also it's it's important to, to remember that he's not the first one doing this. And it, it's incorrect to even call this a movement at this point, but right. people were were critiquing indulgences and the papacy and the overstepping of clergy 
for hundreds of years. I mean, you mentioned Jan Hus, who it's it's likely that Luther had read some of his stuff. Hus was a couple hundred years earlier, and his followers, the Husites, were you know sort of proto reformers, or at least calling out the church on the indulgences and the abuses. And Jan Hus was burned at the stake. Some of his followers were burned at the stake, and and these were church sanctioned tribunals. Like the church would be there. This was at a council. And they just say, all right, we hand you over to the state to be burned to death because you disagree with some of our practices. And the Waldensians and John Wycliffe and all these people, there's hundreds of years of this happening. And Luther is sort of his, maybe because the fortuitous providential moment in time and his connections, and there's a, an uptick in 1517. And that's why we date the Protestant Reformation there. But there's the church has always had its critics. And this is not Luther saying we need to start a new church, but we're trying to reform, which means keep the structure, but but change it, reform it into what it's supposed to be, right? Remove the elements that are not biblical, not scriptural. And it's, yeah, it, it's wrong to think about, and we said this on the last episode, the Protestants are not trying to start a new church. They're not, it's not like the church existed for 1500 years and the Protestants come and say, well, now we're going to do our own thing, which is how some Roman Catholics picture it. But this is, Christians trying to reform the institution that they're inhabiting, and then they get kicked out, right? We're not the ones who got, we're trying to move out. They were the ones who closed the door on us. People often say like, you know, the church didn't begin in the 1500s, meaning that Protestants are kind of ignorant of everything that happened before the Reformation. But I would also say that Christianity didn't stop after 1500 either. I mean, like people don't realize how much Protestantism has developed in its own tradition, how how deeply they thought about some of these things. And look, I mean, I don't agree with everything Luther says. You know, I mean, and, and I don't think it's like, yeah, Luther had problems. He's a fallible human being. And I don't think he was even, he's not a, he wasn't trying to systematize something. I mean, he was very much this like public figure. And it was to later theologians to really work out the implications of his doctrine and to modify it and tweak it and say it differently. And, uh, but I think it's important to appreciate what he did in his time. I think even Catholics can appreciate that, but I think Protestants especially. And Luther, to me, you know, I have a lot of respect for people who, when they go against something, it costs them. You know, I mean, that's the whole thing with virtue signaling, where you try to get the credit for being righteous, but there's no cost. But for Luther, he had a lot to lose saying what he said. And I think his actual reluctance to really just be a firebrand in the beginning and just start a, a revolution shows that he was really trying to be like, I'm not trying to cause this stir. I just think we need to talk about a few things, you know? And uh, so I, I think there's a lot of stuff to learn from Luther. I think he's worth reading. I, I certainly want to read some more Luther. I've, I've probably read more Calvin. I've definitely read yeah. more Calvin. and and. Uh, but Luther, to me, he represents something very courageous that I that I respect a lot. For all of his faults, for all of his flaws, and he had many, um, I think you have to appreciate who he was in the time that he was. Your mother was a cow and your father was Satan. That's what he said. <laughs> it's um, one of my favorite Luther insults. Yep, yep, yep. That's, that's, uh, that's a great way to full, end. Full of, full of quotes. But uh, anyway, thank you guys for listening in. Hope this was helpful. Again, I'm going to put a show notes uh, links 
to some of the sources that we use for this. It was really helpful for us to learn about. Hope that you guys uh, are helped by them as well. I was going to pull up another Luther insult, but I don't have one off the top of my head. We've probably okay. given, we've inflicted too much on people today. Probably. That's probably, <laughs> they'd be insulted if we said more insults. So anyway, right. thank you guys for listening. Uh, make sure you check us out on our website, that'll preach.io. You can follow us on Instagram, that'll preach podcast. Make sure you like, subscribe, review, share with your friends, let them know about it. And we will see you guys next week.